Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 1, which along with Psalms 2 and 3 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, July the 5th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. We are taking a look still in uh, 1 Samuel, the book of Acts, and the Gospel according to Luke. And so we're continuing the story of Saul, uh, the Saul, the first king over Israel. And, and so here now we begin with uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, and then 7 to 23. So Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, that offends a lot of people. <laughs> that God would do that is something that offends an awful lot of people. Well, who is Amalek and why would God do this? Well, the problem is, is that that Amalek, it was the, the people um, came from a, a son of Esau's son, Eliphaz, had a concubine, and they had a son named Amalek. And so that the, this one, the rejected son, Esau, not the brother, um, Jacob, had, this is his grandchild, who is, who is forms the people of Amalek. And so there's a natural enmity between the two of them because remember Esau gave away uh, his birthright and then was tricked out of his blessing from his father. And so he, he ended up, that what we know from before that was though that he had been rejected by God straight away. Jacob was always going to be the one. Now, there was no reason for all the trickery and everything else that Jacob and his mother cooked up against Esau. But Esau was his father's favorite, and Jacob was his mother's favorite. And so they tricked uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing, and the, and uh, Jacob just stole, literally stole the birthright. He, he wouldn't give his brother a, some something to eat when he came in and was famished. Now, was he really famished? I mean, he was completely restored from having eaten a bowl of soup. So he, he might have been a little bit of a drama queen in that instance. But... What, so what happens is there's this natural enmity, enmity between the sons of Amalek and the sons of Israel. And so what you get is, is that as soon as, I mean, they've barely come out of Egypt um, as, the, as the nation in Exodus. They've barely come out. They've, they've hit Massa and Meribah, which was the first problem place where the people first grumbled because there was no water. And so the Lord provides the water for them there at Massa and Meribah. And, and literally from there it moves into, and then the people of Amalek came out against the people of Israel at Rephidim. And this is Exodus 17. So they come out against the, the barely birthed people who are unprepared, wildly unprepared to defend themselves at this place. And it's the story where Moses' hands have to be held up all through the battle. And as long as his hands are being held up, then Israel prospers in the battle. But if, as soon as they drop, then Amalek begins to overrun them. And so they, they tried to destroy the nation before it became a nation. That they were going to destroy what God had brought into being. And, and they were 
like I said, barely out of being slaves in Egypt when all this happens. Only a few days, literally. And they come out and try and kill them. Well, why is that? So that there's this long time enmity. And, and then this goes on and on and on throughout Israel's history. And you'll see that God says it's going to. It was a promise because of Saul's failure to do what he was told to do here. They were supposed to kill everything and everybody. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So he, he kept the king, and then, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they were coming away with spoils of the battle here. They decided not to do what God wanted them to do. Surely he didn't mean that, you know, completely. No, he, he must have meant for us to take the good stuff. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He's not there. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. So he didn't set up a monument to the Lord. He didn't set up an altar to the Lord there. He sets up a monument to himself up there on Mount Carmel. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Saul and Samuel's response is basically, Really? Really? Then what's the bleeding of the sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I shouldn't be hearing these sounds if you did what God told you to do, that, that I wouldn't hear ox and sheep here. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. So, so did you hear the pronouns there? They brought them out from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. The rest we devoted to destruction. Huh? <laughs> Samuel said, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, speak. And so Samuel says, though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Aren't you in charge here? Who's in charge? Is it you or the people? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote yourself, <clears throat> go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what's evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said, I mean, Saul said, I, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. This is all Genesis 3 language. When, when God confronts Adam in Genesis 3, what's his response? The woman you gave me. Hers is not much better. The serpent deceived me. No, no, no. I gave you the word. And you obey the voice of your wife, is what God says to Adam. And, and that's exactly the same charge here that's being laid against Saul. I don't care. You're making excuses, but these excuses don't hold water because you, Saul, were told what to do. 
There's no reason and no excuse for you allowing, if that's what happened, that for the people to do this. But, but he's the leader of the people, and he's blaming the people for his own failure, something Moses never did. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. I mean, Saul sins about a million different ways here. He fails to do what God told him to do. He allows the people to run over him. If his story's true, he allows the people to run over him and does whatever they wanted to do. Again, I'm going to say it. He had the fear of man, obviously, is what's going on. But behind their backs, he's throwing his people under the bus and blaming them for his failure as a leader. I mean, it's awful to see what he does here. It's just a terrible thing to watch this. As opposed to Jesus, who self-sacrificially laid down his life for those who killed him. He never blamed the people. He didn't do that. It was in the gospel lesson, it's about the sixth hour, so it's about noon. It was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It doesn't mean somebody went in and tore the curtain of the temple which separated from the holy place from the holy of holies. It means that something happened that caused that curtain to be torn into two. So the veil between God's people and God's footstool and his throne was torn into two. Now, what that could possibly mean is the judgment of God would be poured out because there's no separation now between man and God. Because the holy place was the place where, where the priests at least could enter and offer up the, um, the incense and the showbread and all that stuff was there. And so the prayers of the people went up from there to God and then inside of that was the place that the chief priest could only go one time per year and he had to go in there with the, with the blood of bulls and goats and pour it on the altar not on the altar but on the Ark of the Covenant in order that the judgment of God not be released against the people and so when that thing's torn in two uh oh bad things could happen here and it, and, and it did the worst possible thing happened here God's judgment was poured out it was poured out in his son for our sins and so now that veil is torn, and it's torn forever because of that. Jesus has pierced that veil, gone through that curtain into even a holier place than the Holy of Holies. He's entered into heaven, entered into the throne room of God, and gone before the throne and taken the seals of judgment. So at that time, Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now the centurion who saw what had taken place praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, the ones who had been mocking him, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts, which is a sign of repentance. What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And then a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, Came and he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. I mean, he's an important personage, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he went and took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It, it, he is making a great sacrifice here by doing this because under Jewish law, nothing else could be put into that tomb now. And so he, he, there's a tenderness 
to the description of all of this, that he, he went and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down, and he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and he laid him in a tomb, cut in a stone where no one had yet been laid. And, and, and there's a tenderness in all that he does here, but, but there is also a, a public declaration here that, that he's aligning himself with Jesus, and he's separating himself from the Sanhedrin. He's separating himself from official Judaism in doing this thing. He's taking the body of a criminal, a man who hanged on a tree, a man who was accursed, and he's personally taking responsibility for that body. It's a powerful statement that Joseph makes here. It's as, he is aligning himself with a man who was accursed. And it's a statement and a witness against the leaders, but it's a statement and a witness to his belief in Jesus. And then it was the day of preparations, which is the day that the lambs are slaughtered, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come from, with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They, they needed to know where to go. And they returned and prepared the spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They're, they're, all these people have aligned themselves with Jesus. And now the, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the council itself had to feel pretty isolated at this point. And, and even though they might be proud of what they had done and that this thing had been finished, when, when the people who were there witnessing it saw what had happened, they recognized how wrong this thing was that it happened. And the people were in the position, essentially, that Saul was in here because the people had, had cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus. And now they see it, and they realize what they've done. They're as responsible as the council in this matter because they are there shouting, crucify him at the cross. And we do that on Palm Sunday. In our churches, we, at the time when we read this, the Passion Gospel, when the people began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, the whole congregation is intended to cry that very same thing in order that we might align ourselves for that moment in time with those who, who called for his crucifixion, that we might no longer blame them for what happened, but we blame ourselves because it's our sin that put him there. So... It's a powerful moment always in the service <clears throat> because that, that is our way of saying we are not blaming the Jews. There's, there's this, um, you can get into anti-Semitism if you don't do that. If you say the Jews are the ones who crucified Christ, then you're, you're, you're not accepting your responsibility. And so that's, we become like Saul to the extent that we refuse to accept that responsibility and we have anti-Semitism in our hearts because we believe that the Jews are the one who crucified Christ. No, we would have been there that day shouting the same thing. And our sins cry out for that Savior to do that very sacrifice. In the uh, Acts passage today, remember that um, Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus. Ananias is sent to him, lays his hands on him, prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit. Something like scales falls from before his eyes, and he begins to recover his sight. And then he begins to, to witness there in Damascus. And he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And he's come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He's proving to those who already believe some things. He, he's doing apologetics. He's taking the scriptures and saying, do you see how all these things point to Jesus? And so these people are already believers, but they're not believers in Christ. They're already 
Jews who are going to the synagogue to worship God, and he's proving to them by Scripture exactly who this Jesus was and that he was the Son of God. And after a while, the Jews began to plot against him to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Happens again and again in the course of Saul's life that the Jews will plot against him, and he'll somehow find out one way or another about this. And so the, the disciples, they were watching the gates in order to kill him. It's similar to the, the situation when, when you see that the, uh, the Jews were plotting to kill Jesus, and they kept trying to find a way to do it, and then they needed somebody to betray him. Well, that's exactly what that sounds like here. But instead, the disciples know about this thing, and they took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, there's just a Moses sort of a deliverance story in that, too. Um, you got Moses, Rahab, and the spies in Jericho. All of it seems to be wrapped up in that one little sentence there. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he attempts to join the disciples, and they're having no part of that. Yeah, we know who you are. You know, you're a double agent, or you, uh, what are you doing here? We don't trust you at all. They were afraid. They didn't believe it. But Barnabas, you remember, he was the one who, who, who sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the disciples. He's a, not just a good man. He's an incredible man. Barnabas takes Paul and brings him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen Jesus and he, uh, spoke with him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So then he began to be, have freedom of movement in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And so then they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I want you to head back home for a little while. <laughs> till the, till the, the, it's a little cooler around here. Till the coast is clear, you need to get out of here. But he, so he's arguing first with the Jews, and then he's arguing against the Hellenists, those who would, would turn the, the uh, Jews in, in the way of um, Greco-Roman culture. And so these are people who are, who are sort of on the fringes in some levels. They're, they're not like the Pharisees. They're about the opposite of the Pharisees as far as Jews are concerned. And so he's disputing with them as well. So Paul's speaking with everybody, and he is, he is disputing, but all the people he's disputing with are Jews. So those, all those people described both in Damascus and then in Jerusalem that he's arguing with are all Jews. And so they want to kill him. And then they took him out and he went to Tarsus. Let's go back home a little bit on the fringe of, of this area where it's a little safer, where you're better known. And then during that time, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and that's an outward expanding circle, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. It's interesting, before that, what we talked about, he added to their number daily. Here, what we get is not addition, it's multiplication. And it has to do with peace. It has to do with walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But, but it has to do with being faithful to the voice. And that's what Paul's done in a way that, that his predecessor, Saul, was not obedient to the voice. But here, Jesus, we see him being obedient to the voice of the Father to go to that cross. And now we see in this Acts lesson that Paul is obedient to the voice that he heard from heaven and he proclaims him to be the Son of God. It's the most important thing we can do is hear which means we have to listen and then to be obedient to the voice that we hear.